0: How do you understand God's relationship with evil in the world? How do you understand God's relationship with evil in the world? Maybe you think evil is just an illusion. The only way to overcome it is mind over matter. Maybe you envision Satan and God battling it out in heaven, two equal and opposing forces vying for supremacy. Maybe you think evil is just relative, that there's no such thing as good or evil, only how an individual feels or what they think about things, that it's just social preferences masquerading as good or evil. Maybe you believe that God created the world, but that he he did not and does not know all outcomes, that he doesn't know the future, but is working hard to make sure that evil doesn't win the day. How do you understand God's relationship with evil? And you're like, John, it's early. It's early. I'm not ready to think deeply. Well, guess what? We're going to think deeply this morning. (laughs) So, I want us to think carefully and deeply about this question. How do you understand God's relationship with evil in the world? This isn't, by the way, a merely academic conversation. How we answer this question will shape and govern our response when evil comes knocking on our door. How how we respond when we are sinned against. When darkness overshadows our home or our family or our job or our school or whatever, how we respond will be shaped by the intellectual and spiritual framework we have in our minds and hearts about this particular question. How do we understand God's relationship with evil in the world. Evil will come. The Bible says through many afflictions we must enter the kingdom of God. Jesus says if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Paul says all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul says we are fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him. He says, not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Evil, sin, and suffering will be part of our lives as long as we live. One of my jobs as your pastors, one of your pastors, is is not to coddle you. One of my jobs as one of your pastors is not to coddle you. I I do indeed desire, deeply desire to bring you into the comforts of Jesus Christ. But for you to really enjoy the warm blanket of Jesus' comforts, your bed has to be made of the steel of biblical truth. Coddled Christians fall apart when their lives fall apart. They become numb with confusion and rage at the God who wasn't supposed to allow evil or suffering into their lives. They come to their pastors asking, if this is the way God is, why didn't you tell me? So one of my goals as one of your pastors in however many years the Lord gives me with you is to build a bed of biblical truth for you that will help you keep the faith when evil comes. Will help you Uh, be strengthened and encouraged and even to put on the the warm blanket of Christ's comforts when evil seems to prevail in your life and I understand that a lot of us are having a great time in life right now it's been a great week you're like John stop it I'm having a great week a great semester but we don't know what's around the corner And as I said, the Bible promises affliction, suffering, sin, pain, and evil around the corner. And it will touch some of us, if not all of us, in ways we could never hope. Through the loss of a parent, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, the loss of a job, an inoperable brain tumor, the list could go on. How you respond when It's your turn, my turn, will be governed in large part on how we answer this question. How do we understand God's relationship with evil in the world? My aim in today's sermon from the Bible, Genesis chapter 27, is to show you that sin or evil will never nullify the good purposes of God in your life. Even more, my aim is to show you that sin and evil actually succeed in making those gracious purposes of God come to pass. This is the steel bed of biblical truth that will hold you up when evil comes. One writer says it this way. He says, quote, I know that a tire iron cannot caress a bruised heart, but if your car is rolling over on you and about to crush you, a cold, steel, perpendicular tire iron might just save your life. Then later, at home, as you tell the story, tears will flow and Jesus will hold, hold you as you sob for joy. End quote. In other words, if, if the back of our faith is broken because we think God is evil or absent, then we won't welcome Him when He comes with the warm blanket of His comfort. How we think about God's relationship with, Ill, with evil will shape the way we respond when evil comes to us. Genesis 27 is one of just many places in the Bible that shows us that God's relationship with evil is not reactionary, but purposeful. The main point of this chapter is that God uses evil to push forward His purposes of blessing the world. In Genesis 27, we'll see that human sin doesn't nullify God's purposes, but actually succeeds in making those purposes come about. This text shows us that sinful scheming actually leads to the fulfillment of God's promises. Genesis 27 teaches us that God is sovereign over sin. So, Genesis 27, find it in a Bible if you haven't already. There are a few Bibles there in front of you if you'd like to use those. Genesis chapter 27. In this chapter, we'll see four things. We'll see Rebecca's scheme, verses 1 through 13. Jacob's deceit, verses 14 through 25, Isaac's blessing, 26 through 38, and Esau's fury, 39 through 46. So again, that's Rebekah's scheme, Jacob's deceit, Isaac's blessing, and Esau's fury. In this text, God wants to show you that His promises move forward through not despite sinful scheming. Number one, Rebecca's scheme, verses 1 through 13. Genesis 27, verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons your quiver and your bow and go out to the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau so when Esau went to the field to hunt game hunt for game and bring it Rebekah said to her son Jacob I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare, them from, uh, prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies." But Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself, and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice, and go bring them to me. Number one, Rebekah's scheme. Isaac and Rebekah are clearly not on the same page here on how to do the blessing with their sons Jacob and Esau. What has happened in their marriage to bring them to this point? They started so well, it looked so good in the beginning when Abraham's servant went to find a wife for Isaac, the Lord led him to Rebekah. Her family didn't want her to go right away, but she volunteered to go anyways all the way to Canaan to a man she didn't know. Then after the long journey, she saw Isaac in the distance. She modestly ve- veils herself. She becomes Isaac's wife, and the text says that Isaac loved her. Then when they're struggling to have children, the text says that Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, and then the Lord answers his prayer, and she conceives and gives birth to twins, Jacob and Esau. But the boys grow up. Esau becomes a skillful hunter, and Jacob a homebody. And this, the text indicates in chapter 25, is when Isaac and Rebekah's marriage starts to break down. 25, 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah loved Jacob. So what's the heart of their marriage problem? The heart of their marriage problem is favoritism. Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. The narrator Moses back over in chapter 27 highlights the division that this favoritism caused in their family. He calls in verse 5, he says that Esau is his son, Isaac's son, not their son. He calls Jacob her son, Rebekah's son, not their son. Indicating what's happened, the division that's happened. Isaac himself calls Esau my son four times. Rebekah calls Jacob, my son, three times. Rebekah is so biased towards Jacob that she'd rather receive a divine curse for him than obey God's will. Verse 13, let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice. Isaac is so biased toward Esau that he deliberately leaves Jacob out when he calls Esau to receive his blessing. Verse 1, when Isaac was old, his eyes were dim so he could not see. He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son when it was customary at that time for a dying man to call all his sons to his side to receive an appropriate blessing, which is what Jacob would later do in chapter 49. But Isaac only calls Esau. We don't know why this favoritism developed. We don't know exactly why, though 25-28 does give us some indication. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Isaac was a man driven by his lusts, his appetites. So he loved the son that did the things that he enjoyed, that he loved. And Rebekah loved Jacob. This is the root sin that wrecked havoc on Abraham's family for generations. Jacob is going to repeat the sins of his parents. Genesis 37, 3. Now Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Favoritism infected this family, and like cancer, it attacked all the relationships in the family relationships between husband and wife, and between siblings, and between children and parents. Favoritism led Isaac to overlook the sin of his favorite son. Isaac should have known that Esau wasn't worthy of his blessing, that he had done nothing but demonstrate that he was the seed of the serpent, not the seed of the woman. Esau despised his birthright, selling it for a bowl of soup, showing that he wasn't worthy of the privilege of being the firstborn. Then later, when he's 40 years old, he marries two Hittite women. That's 26-34. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Barry, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So he's married two Hittite women. Remember how adamant Abraham was that Isaac not marry a woman from Canaan, but rather someone from his own kinfolk? Esau didn't seem to care or understand that God called his family to be a special, set-apart, and holy family. So he commits polygamy. He marries women he should have never married, two of them. Isaac should have seen that Esau wasn't acting worthy of the privilege of being the firstborn, but he was blinded by favoritism and his sin devastated his family. Favoritism led Isaac to overlook the sin of his favorite son. You may have experienced favoritism in your family. Maybe you're still experiencing it. Favoring one child over the others does nothing, friends, does nothing but harm all the children, even the one favored, and harm the marriage. This sin is so harmful that one counselor describes it as covert incest. Covert incest, so not sexual, that would be overt, covert. Listen to what he says. It's worth quoting at length because few of us have thought through this very carefully. He writes, Covert incest occurs when a child becomes the object of a parent's affection, love, passion, and preoccupation. The parent, motivated by the loneliness and emptiness created by a chronically troubled marriage or relationship, makes the child a surrogate partner. The boundary between caring love and incestuous love is crossed when the relationship with the child exists to meet the needs of the parent rather than the needs of the child. The child becomes an object to be manipulated and used so the parent can avoid the pain and reality of a troubled marriage. It is important to understand that parents recreate their own family systems. Most parents are not malicious and are not aware of the effect they're having on their children because a part of their own childhood is buried deep within. Sadly, if one's own childhood is not seen for what it really was, the pain of these incestuous relationships gets passed on from one generation to the next. If parents never recover their lost childhoods, their their grief deepens. They continue to expect their children to be there for them in ways they wish their parents had been. When this expectation goes unmet, parents see their children as ungrateful, unloving, and selfish. The result heightens struggles between adult children and aging parents. Willpower or the right set of moral standards isn't enough to produce lasting, healthy changes. Only by facing one's past can one take responsibility for oneself and reclaim the vitality surrendered by being a parent's surrogate spouse." End quote the sin of favoritism has generational effects this was true in abraham's family it may be true in yours if you've wondered why you feel so conflicted toward toward a parent who has shown great care for you it may be that you received their care for their sake not yours If you've ever wondered why one of your parents is cold and distant and perhaps even antagonistic towards you, it may be that you're receiving their anger toward their spouse for giving you the emotional depth they should have given them. If you've ever wondered why there is such antagonism or strife or ambivalence between you and your siblings, it may be because of favoritism. There's also good reason to believe that these kinds of sinful parent-child relationships create conditions for disordered sexual desires that start to play themselves out during adolescence. The sin of favoritism has generational and far-reaching effects. Parents or want-to-be parents, the best thing you can do for your children is therefore twofold. First, be honest with yourself about your own story, about how you're perhaps unconsciously recreating your family system and how you're wanting your kids to give you things God never designed for them to give you. And second, parents, pursue with all your might a deepening relationship with your spouse. Marriage is the most fundamental and beautiful human institution in the world. God intends husbands and wives to be growing together into what the Bible calls a one flesh union, and it's about so much more than sex. It's an intimate depth of emotion and care and uh, forgiveness and getting to know one another. Husbands and wives, pray for this in your, in your marriage. Husbands, lead your wives into the hard and honest conversations that need to happen to get you there. Maybe you're single, but I encourage you to consider how your family system has and is shaping you and pray for God to heal whatever may be broken. Church members should be thinking and talking and praying through these things together. We're called to bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6.2. Nothing is off-limits in the context of a discipling relationship. Mm -hmm. It might do a lot of us a lot of good to stop focusing on the symptoms of our sin, but on the heart and the pain and the brokenness that's behind it. Marriages that aren't growing steadily healthier are fertile soil for favoritism. And when this sin springs up, its shoots will start to grow and spread over our families for generations. Now, the good news is that the sin of favoritism doesn't have the last word in Abraham's family. And it doesn't have to have the last word in our families either. Amen? Amen? Sin does not stop God's good purposes in our lives. But back in Genesis 27, sin does lead Rebekah to concoct a plan to steal Esau's blessing for her favorite son, Jacob. Rebekah's plan depended on Isaac's bad eyesight, verse 1, but it seems that he was blind in more ways than one. He should have realized, as I said, that Esau had disqualified himself from the blessing, but he pushes blindly ahead and, like Esau, reveals that he's a man controlled more by his appetite than the Lord. Fortunately for Jacob, Rebekah hears Isaac's plan to cut him out of his will. She springs into action, formulates a plan that will allow Jacob to get the blessing. It's a simple but bold plan. While Esau is out hunting, she'll prepare a meal for Isaac and Jacob will then serve it to him and then receive his blessing. Interestingly, instead of objecting to this deceitful scheme in verses 11 and 12, Jacob just raises a logistical question. Jacob says to Rebekah's mother, Behold, my brother is a hairy guy. I'm not. So Jacob understands the risk. He says, It may be that my father will bring a curse upon me, not a blessing. He knows that if this doesn't work, he'll be cursed instead of blessed. But Rebekah quickly dismisses his concern, saying that the curse would fall on her, not him. Verse 13. And it's also apparent that Rebecca has become quite domineering. Modest Rebe- Rebecca is now barking orders, Obey my voice, she says over and over in this text. Obey my voice, obey my voice. Do as I commanded you. Rebecca is so blinded by her preoccupation with Jacob that she's doing whatever she has to do to make sure he's blessed. One wonders if her care for Jacob was more for him or for her. So we've seen Rebecca's scheme, number two. We'll see that Rebecca wasn't the only one willing to deceive to get the blessing. We'll see, secondly, that Jacob also was a deceitful man. Number two, Jacob's deceit, verse 14 through 25. Jacob's deceit, verse 14. So he, Jacob, went and took them and brought them to his mother. And his mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. So he went to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him, and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near me, near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. So Rebecca prepares the meal and puts goat skins on Jacob so that Isaac will think he's Esau. If he touches him and Jacob goes into Isaac with the food. His heart was probably racing as he wonders if this plan is going to work. Will Isaac recognize my voice? Will the goatskins fool him? Will he taste the difference between goat meat and venison? When will, when will Esau return? Those goat skins Jacob was wearing were probably drenched with sweat because he was probably freaking out on the inside. But there's no turning back now. He's already gone in. The sinful family system his parents created have led him into this moment. What will he do? What will Jacob do? Well, the text says plainly in 18 through 25 that Jacob is just as willing to sin to get what he wants as his parents were. Jacob wants to get this over with quickly. Verse 19. I'm Esau. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat, that you're so many blessed me. <laughs> He's like, come on, let's do this. But Isaac's in no hurry. Isaac tries to discern who this is. He tests him five times. Verse 18. Who are you, my son? Verse 20. How is it that you have found the game so quickly? Verse 21. Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you're really my son Esau or not. Verse 24. Are you really my son Esau? And then in verse 26. Come near and kiss me, my son. And we'll see in just a moment that when Isaac finally smells Esau's scent on his clothes, he's convinced. God puts all of Isaac's remaining senses to work for his purposes, his nose, his hands, his ears, and his palate are finally convinced that this was indeed Esau. Of course, the problem is that it wasn't Esau. It was Jacob. Jacob followed Rebekah into this sinful scheme of deception. Jacob flat flat out lied to his father, saying that he was Esau twice, 19 and 24. He even, in verse 20, uses the name of God to promote his lies. Did you see that in verse 20? How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God gave me success. Look, if you're going to do something stupid, don't bring God into it. (laughs) The Lord, notice, he says, the Lord your God. At this point in the narrative of Genesis, the Lord is... Isaac's God, he's not yet Jacob's God. That will change after an all-night wrestling match, a few chapters. But for now, Jacob is hell-bent on doing whatever he has to do to please his mother and get the blessing for himself. So he lies. He schemes with his mother. And he's just as guilty as she is. And their sinful scheming works. In the next section, 26 through 38, we see that Isaac does indeed bless Jacob. So number three... Isaac's blessing. Isaac's blessing 26 through 38. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me my son. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see the smell of my son is the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father Esau, his brother, came in from the hunting. He also prepared delicious food, brought it to his father, and he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Isaac indeed blesses Jacob. 28 through 29, he speaks three blessings over him. 28 is a blessing of fertility in the field. 29, blessing of political supremacy. End of 29, a blessing or a promise of reciprocal br- blessings and curses, echoing the original blessing given to Abraham. Lying Jacob will be blessed, and he will be a mediator of blessing to others. But interestingly, in this blessing, Isaac only focuses on the material and physical aspects of the covenant blessing. He leaves out completely the spiritual and missional dimensions of the covenant. There's no mention in 27, 28, and 29 of God's presence with Jacob or God wanting to bless all the nations through Jacob. Isaac's physical and spiritual eyes are failing. Brothers and sisters, if you're getting up in age, you can define that however you would like. Press hard into your God. Don't let your spirit fail while your eyes and body do. Stay active in prayer, the Word, the church, relationships. Don't let your spiritual vision fade like Isaac's has. Favoritism has led Isaac to overlook the sin of his favorite son Esau. Now he only seems to be concerned with material matters, not spiritual matters, as he blesses Jacob. After Jacob receives the blessing, he leaves just before Esau returns. Esau brings the meal he prepared into Isaac and introduces himself. Isaac is understandably confused, but when he realizes what has happened, his whole body reacts thirty-three 2733. Isaac trembled very violently. When was the last time you trembled very violently because something bad just happened? This is an intense, full body response when Isaac realizes what has just happened. Once he gave the blessing, it couldn't be taken back. <clears throat> perhaps he finally realizes that he's been fighting against God's purposes as Esau has, and he finally accepts defeat there at the end of verse 33. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Esau seems to understand this. Isaac's extreme panic is matched by Esau's extreme uh, distress. Verse 34, As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, He finally realizes that he's lost everything, and Jacob has gained everything. And Isaac doesn't mince words about what happened. Verse 35, your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau, this is what happened. Your brother deceived me and stole your blessing. Esau then complains bitterly, points out that Jacob is appropriately named, and I think like every son, Esau longs to have the blessing of his father. Have you not reserved the blessing for me? And Isaac's heart is broken for his son. What then can I do for you, my son? I've already given everything to Jacob. Because of Isaac's sin of favoritism, he can't even bless the son he loved. All he can do is leave him in agony. Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Sin has thoroughly destroyed what Isaac loved the most. The damage of this sinful family system and the sinful scheme is extensive. This next section, 39 through 46, tells us that Esau responds with murderous fury. Number four, Esau's fury. Number four, Esau's fury, 39 through 46. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. 41, now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah, so she sent and called Jacob her younger son and said to him, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice, arise. Flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah, Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me?" Esau only found comfort in thinking about killing his brother. Rebekah again takes control and commands her favorite son to flee to her brother Laban until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you. Esau is furious and he's so angry, the only way he can be comforted in his mind is if he kills his brother. These verses yet again confirm that Esau is the seed of the serpent, not the seed of the woman. It reminds us of the conflict promised in Genesis 3.15 where the Lord says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. There will be a battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Esau wants to murder his brother just like Cain murdered Abel. So, earlier in that text, 39 and 40, Isaac says that he must go away. He must live a wandering existence like Cain, like Ishmael. He must go into the wilderness beside Canaan rather than in the lush land of Canaan. Esau is another Cain who's being driven away from the good land. Esau has despised his birthright, married two Canaanite women, wants to kill his brother Jacob, who's the seed of the woman, meaning that the seed of the serpent is alive and well in him. But then there's Jacob. Jacob receives the the blessing. His descendants will inherit the promised land. He's the seed of the woman through whom God will crush the head of the serpent. But Jacob is a scoundrel. He's a liar. He's a scheming, deceitful man. He's even a thief taking what wasn't his. And here's the question that this text begs for us. We're going to spend the remainder of our time considering it together. Does Jacob being blessed mean that God approves of all his deception? How do you understand the relationship between God and evil in the world? Does Jacob being blessed mean that God approves of his deception? Of course it doesn't. Absolutely not. The law explicitly forbids lying in the Ten Commandments. This narrative is going to show us that later in the coming chapters that Rebekah and Jacob actually don't benefit from this deception in the short term. Rebekah has to send her favorite son away. She'll never see her favorite son again. Her brother Laban will give Jacob a taste of his own medicine in chapter 29, and then Jacob's own sons will deceive him by claiming that his favorite son Joseph has been killed Moses' point in relaying these things first to Israel, now to us, is not that God approves of deception. His point, his message is much more profound. His point is that God uses human deception to accomplish His gracious purposes. Remember the prophecy that the Lord spoke to Rebekah when the twins were born. 25-23, the older shall serve the younger. The older, Esau, shall serve the younger Jacob even if Isaac didn't know about that prophecy he knew what kind of guy his favorite son Esau was but instead of confronting him or correcting him he tries to give him the blessing and exclude Jacob from the blessing but 25-23 25:23 says that God's plan was already set in motion before either son did anything good or bad. God said clearly that his blessing, his covenant, his chosen people would come through Jacob, not through Esau. The older shall serve the younger. This was God's good plan from the beginning. It was God's good plan from even before they were born. And God's plans are never derailed by sin. Rebecca and Jacob's evil plan may have worked for them, but it also worked to fulfill the word of the Lord. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, God's purposes triumph through sin, not in spite of sin. And think of it, friends, in a fallen world, is it any surprise that God intends to use human sin to carry out His purposes? Think of it. How could He not? What humans would God work with if He could only work with humans without sin? Human sin, even the family-destroying generational sin of favoritism, doesn't nullify God's purposes to bless the world, but actually succeed in making those purposes come about. God is sovereign over sin. Think of all the other times in the Bible where God used human deception to move His plan forward. I'll just remind you of the greatest deception of all time. You might think of some others in the Old Testament, but of course the greatest deception of all time was the trial of Jesus Christ. The New Testament says that at the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Judas then betrays Jesus and is held responsible for his deception but Jesus dies as it is written of Him because God uses deceit to move His plan forward. Later the same night, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put Him to death. After finding two false witnesses, they determined that He deserved death. They take Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate, who realizes Jesus is innocent, but he fears the crowd, so he washes his hands of the matter, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood knowing good and well that this guy is innocent. But deceit moves the plan forward. Then Peter, on Pentecost, stands up and preaches and says, Jesus of Nazareth was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed Him by the hands of lawless men. He's saying to his Jewish brothers and sisters, you killed Jesus because of your sin Jesus died. Lawless men killed Jesus. Human deception led Jesus to the cross. Deceit moves the plan forward. And what we've seen here in Genesis 27 is no different. God's design was to use human sin to fulfill His promises. Rebecca and Jacob's evil plan was the means by which God fulfilled His promise. God is so sovereign and so wise that He can ordain that certain things come about through sin without Himself sinning and by holding sinners accountable. The cross of Jesus Christ is the clearest culmination of this truth found all over the Bible. Friends, when Jesus died, God didn't just overcome evil. When Jesus died, God made evil serve the overcoming of evil. Let me say that again. When Jesus died, God didn't just overcome evil. He made evil serve the overcoming of evil on the cross. God made evil commit suicide when doing its worst evil. Genesis 27 is just an echo or a, Foreshadowing to this greater evil that happens on the cross, where the sinless Son of Man is murdered for crimes he did not commit. But in that sin, God's glorious and good purposes are pushed forward. How do you understand God's relationship with evil in the world? Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Job asked. The reason I so desperately want you to see these truths in the Bible and cherish them in your hearts is because I don't want you to run away from God when evil knocks on your door. I don't want you to think that God is evil or think that God is absent when evil and sin and deception comes knocking on your door. These truths will help you keep the faith when you start to see just how thoroughly sin has infected your family system and your heart and the world we live in. This does not excuse evil or sin. You may be thinking that Rebecca just did all this because she knew it was going to be Jacob who was going to rule over his brother. So she's justified. God had told her the older's going to serve the younger. So she goes about her deceitful scheme because she knows what's supposed to happen. Rebecca's knowledge of that prophecy does not excuse her favoritism and deceit and sin. Brothers and sisters, sin is sin, period. Evil is evil all sin and all evil will be judged. Sin and evil is judged on Jesus' body on the cross for everyone who puts their trust in Him. Or sin and evil will be judged on you in hell if you don't. God doesn't let any sin or evil just go away. No one gets away with sin and evil. But the glory of this text... And the glory of the cross is that human sin doesn't nullify God's good purposes. Indeed, it pushes them forward. And this truth provides us with a warm blanket to wrap up in in when evil comes our way. Think, friends, how, how would God's presence be comforting to you if you think that things have happened or are happening to you that are outside of God's good plan for you? How would you receive His comfort if you don't trust His wisdom? What if the worst tragedies and darkest sins and greatest evils are the places we'll find the greatest glory? Isn't that what the cross teaches us plainly? And don't our lives give evidence to that as well? Stories in my life could be multiplied and probably in yours that suggest that the darkest days have shown me the greatest light in the face of Jesus Christ. It's only when we look back, as novelist Marilyn Robinson says, I love this, Marilyn Robinson, she says, it's only when we look back that we see that in all that deep darkness, a miracle was preparing. So the sinful favoritism of Isaac, the sinful scheming of Rebekah, they definitely have generational effects on their family. But unbeknownst to them, a miracle was brewing. Through their sin, God was preparing the way for His Son. And this story reminds us that God's people don't get it right all the time, but that God keeps blessing His people in, even when we keep getting things wrong. This story is supposed to remind us that God's grace is greater than all of our sin. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please take your word and write it on our hearts so that we might not sin against you, that we might think rightly of you, that we might conceive of you in true and biblical ways, that we might think carefully about these deep, and hard and difficult things. Father, we, many of us, many of us, many of us are hurting and afflicted and in pain and and maybe no one knows and we need the warm blanket of Jesus' comfort. Father, we also need the still bed of biblical truth that shows us and tells us that you don't just react to sin and pain and evil, but that you have good and wise purposes in it for our good and for your glory. Help us to trust you, Father. When the the dark days come, when the darkest days come, please help us to trust you. Help us to run to you because you are the only place we know to go. You are our rock. You don't move, you don't change, and you never will. God, give us eyes to see your glorious sovereignty over sin and evil. And give us eyes to see how you made sin and evil your servants on the cross of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray in his holy name. Amen.